From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. This week, the first doses of the Pfizer vaccine were administered in Australia. Some have said this has felt like a real turning point in the pandemic. But are we being premature in calling the vaccine rollout a success in the fight against coronavirus? Today, Bianca O'Grady on the start of the rollout in Australia and what the COVID vaccination programs abroad might tell us about the success of the COVID vaccines. Bianca O'Grady is a science journalist and the author of the Medical Republic's daily COVID blog. Bianca, the first Pfizer vaccines were administered in Australia this week. What has been the discussion about this momentous occasion? And does this mean that we've turned the final corner of the pandemic? Well, it's certainly a momentous occasion. And absolutely, having these vaccines is a vital part of getting on top of COVID-19 and and starting to uh, get the pandemic under control. But it's important to remember that this is just one pillar of that control measure. And I don't think there's anybody that believes that vaccines are going to solve the problem. First of all, they're not 100% effective in terms of preventing infection. They are very effective in, at preventing severe disease and hospitalizations. They're pretty effective at preventing infection, but not 100%. Um, we also still don't know what that means in terms of transmission. So if somebody is vaccinated, but they still do develop the infection, can they transmit it? Uh, also, there's still the outstanding question of children who at the moment there are no vaccines approved for anyone under the age of 18, I believe. So there's big questions around what that means for children in the population, um, if and when children are vaccinated. And until that happens, does that mean that kids can act as a kind of a reservoir of the virus? So, you know, it's really important that we don't view this as the silver bullet that will solve this pandemic. You know, we still need to focus on those public health measures. And unfortunately, we've actually had the first reported overdose of the Pfizer vaccine already this week. So two elderly aged care residents were given an incorrect dose by a doctor. And it's been reported that it may have been four times the recommended dose. So since then, the doctor has been stood down from the vaccination program and an investigation is underway. But unfortunately, this stands as the first and hopefully the last, but you never know with these things, example, it's really an example of the dangers of working with multi-dose vials. Yeah, it's interesting. I I don't know for sure why multi-dose vials are used other than the fact that um, particularly with the Pfizer vaccine, it has to be kept at such low temperatures, just makes it much more efficient to to have more doses in the one vial. But, you know, I mean, mistakes happen. Humans are fallible and doctors are human. So it probably won't be the last case. But as far as I know so far, both of the individuals who were affected haven't shown any signs of, of complications from that, as far as I know. And look, there's, you know, the logistics of delivering these vaccines, there's so many things to consider. So one of the issues that Australia is currently facing is a shortage of what are called low dead space syringes. So these are basically designed to ensure that there's as little as possible vaccine fluid left in the needle so that you get all six doses out of the needle. Without these dead space syringes, there's a chance that you can only get five full doses out. So that's, you know, these are, it's another logistical challenge. And I I guess there's a kind of inevitable consequence of these things happening and moving so fast is that governments and health authorities and even, you know, kind of manufacturers are really playing catch up, trying to, to get ahead of 
what is, a, you know, the biggest vaccine rollout in human history. So, of course, there are going to be challenges like that. But, you know, the, the manufacturers have said, look, for the most part, normal syringes will get most of the dosage out. So it's not going to be perfect. Things that happen this fast, there will always be some issues and those issues we just need to iron out as we go along and, and certainly hopefully with these two people who received the overdoses of vaccines, hopefully, you know, there's no ill effects that, that they experience and, you know, we learn learn lessons from it each time. What is the data coming out from the UK now? You know, they're a country that has successfully already vaccinated hundreds of thousands of people. What are the early results from their vaccination program showing? Well, this is great because now instead of just being, you know, vaccine studies done in, in kind of controlled populations, we're now seeing these on the ground in real life. Uh, so there's two studies. The first has come out of Scotland. So these are non-peer-reviewed studies at the moment. And that was really just looking. Uh, so they were using vaccination, primary care, hospitalisation and mortality records for Scotland. So they were looking at the one point, nearly 1.2 million people who received at least one dose of either the Pfizer, BioNTech or the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. And they found that efficacy peaked at around 28 to 34 days after vaccination. And it was 85% efficacy. This is in preventing hospital admissions from COVID. So this is not preventing infection. This is preventing severe illness. The efficacy was 85% for the Pfizer vaccine, 94% for those who received the AstraZeneca vaccine. So that's really encouraging. And then meanwhile, Public Health England has also put out its analysis of what they're starting to see with the early data. Um, and what was most interesting with this was they were looking at the numbers of COVID-19 hospitalizations around the country since the vaccine program began in December. And they were noting that there was an overall decline in hospitalizations, but particularly amongst the older age groups that were targeted for vaccination. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccine is achieving it. There could be, I mean, obviously England has been in, gone back into lockdown. So there's been a number of public health measures that have been undertaken in that time as well. So we can't necessarily say that this is solely the result of vaccination, but, you know, it's it certainly, it's, it's hopeful. It's certainly hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that the schools will be going back in the UK in the next three weeks. It will be interesting to see what happens over there. And the other news this week is that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine may not need to be stored in such low temperatures after all. Yeah, and look, this is great news, particularly for low-income countries and countries where you know the health infrastructure is not as resilient, where cold chain issues are much more prevalent. Uh, you know, keeping a vaccine at minus 60 to minus 80 degrees Celsius is just not practical for so many countries around the world. I mean, they, they struggle, many countries struggle just keeping vaccines at, at uh, you know, standard refrigeration temperatures. So the Pfizer and BioNTech have now submitted data to the US Food and Drug Administration, apparently demonstrating that the their vaccine is stable, even if it's stored at minus 15 to minus 25 degrees Celsius, which is still pretty damn cold. It's still colder than our standard refrigeration, but it's certainly a lot more practical than minus 60 to minus 80. And apparently some of these vaccines have already been used in their clinical trials. So I believe that they're submitting data that suggests that there's no loss of efficacy if it is stored at those higher temperatures. But, you know, they're, they're hoping to update the prescribing information. But obviously, you know, we have to wait for the health authorities, certainly in Australia, the TGA, to process similar data and decide whether or not that's possible. But I think that would make a massive difference in terms of the rollout 
if they don't have to be kept at such cold temperatures. Yeah, absolutely, because even countries like Australia, where we do have very impressive health infrastructure, we still know that most people in rural and remote areas will only be able to get the Astra vaccine, even if they are eligible for the Pfizer one, just because that cold chain management to certain areas of Australia is just basically impossible. We don't have the trucks and the Mm. facilities to manage those kinds of temperatures. So perhaps something slightly higher will actually be more achievable. Yeah, absolutely. Or anything that makes it easier to get these vaccines out is a good thing. Absolutely. And turning our attention closer to home again, the TGA in Australia has decided that the optimal timeframe between Australians receiving their first dose and their second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine is between four and 12 weeks. So that's a little bit longer than it was indicated for in other countries. What is the latest efficacy data on the optimal timeframe between the doses on the world stage? So, um, yeah, so the TGA, I mean, certainly I think AstraZeneca says you can give it the second dose anywhere from four to 12 weeks, but they have said that the longer period of time uh, is is better in terms of efficacy and certainly the analysis of trial data backs that up. And I think in Australia, TAGI has actually actually recommended the 12-week um, duration, 12-week gap between doses rather than the four weeks. So there's been a meta-analysis done of four of the AstraZeneca Oxford trials, and they found that the overall efficacy in preventing PCR-confirmed symptomatic COVID-19 overall was uh, 67%. But in individuals who got those two doses more than 12 weeks apart, the efficacy was 81%, whereas those who got it less than six weeks apart, it was just over 55%. So a big difference between six weeks apart and 12 weeks apart. And they also looked at antibody titers, and this includes the all-important neutralizing antibodies, and they found that the second dose if it was given more than 12 weeks after the first dose, people had twofold higher antibody levels compared to those who had the second dose within six weeks. So it really there's there's kind of growing evidence and certainly even the TGA did, did acknowledge that a longer duration between first and second doses are likely to be better. And to, look, this it does actually make logistically uh, more sense to have that longer dose because it means you can vaccinate more people with the first dose. You've got a, a bigger time frame before you have to then come around and do everyone again. So it, yeah, I think it's a win-win situation. And how about the latest study published on JAMA, which shows that long COVID or the symptoms that we know that have hung around after a COVID infection in some patients Is it true that they could last up to nine months after the initial infection? Yeah, so this notion of long COVID is really emerging as a a big issue in people who've had COVID and even people who've had mild COVID. I mean, we've had, there was a study just recently looking at post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms in people who were hospitalised with severe COVID and, and, you know, around a third of them had PTSD symptoms within a few months after um, after leaving hospital. But this particular study was looking at 177 adults, most of whom had only mild illness and were treated as outpatients. But they found that around a third of them were still experiencing symptoms as much as nine months after illness. And so these are symptoms of fatigue, loss of smell or taste, um, and some of them also just reporting brain fog, which, you know, I think it's just, it seems to be something that comes up a lot. It's just that inability to think. You're just really not 
able to concentrate, not able to focus. And the incidence was actually higher in those, in older people. So that, uh, around 43% of those aged over 65 experienced these persistent symptoms. But they were, what was interesting is that they were similar amongst the outpatient and the hospitalized participants in the study. So around 85% of these adults were treated as outpatients. And I think it was only 9% or something who were treated in hospital, but the risk of persistent symptoms was similar. Also, the risk of persistent symptoms was only slightly higher amongst individuals with hypertension or diabetes, which are certainly emerging as risk factors for more serious illness. So yeah, it does, it does really show us that, you know, this is not an illness that you recover from quickly and, and go, you know, bounce back to normal. And it certainly shows the lie of, of, you know, kind of the deniers who say, oh, look, it's no worse than the flu and it's only got 1% mortality and all that sort of stuff. It's like, yeah, but that's, you're looking at a very long tail of morbidity associated with this disease and a long, a long tail that affects not just people with severe illness, but people with mild illness as well. And I was going to ask Bianca, just to finish off, you know, we're now almost a year since you started the COVID blog for the Medical Republic, did did you think that we would be here with a vaccine? And I had no idea. I had no idea what to expect. I don't think anyone could have anticipated how fast science would move. I don't think even scientists would have anticipated how fast science would move. You know, I think certainly in those early stages of the pandemic, you know, the people who were really on the ground and who who were watching the data knew that this was going to get very bad. And and I think very early on, the New York Times did a story where they'd actually looked at all of the correspondence between a whole group of experts, um, you know, including people from Australia who were sounding the alarm. They were screaming the alarm early on about how bad this was potentially going to get. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible to think it's been a year and, you know, there's certainly been periods where, you know, I thought, oh, okay, we don't need to do this blog anymore. It's, it's over. And then, of course, we have the second wave and then we have it's so, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. And I think it, it, I mean, it is testament to the extraordinary determination and willpower and innovation and intelligence of you know, the scientific medical research community, that we are where we are now. And it's also a pretty sad indictment of, of a lot of kind of governments that we are where we are now as well. So, you know, there's a lot of good and bad in there, but boy, what a trip. I mean, it's it's been one hell of a wild ride. It's <laughs> emotionally, it's uh, it's incredible to, to kind of experience that. And certainly uh, it's sometimes, you, you know, you forget how much this toll, what you know, what this toll has been and seeing the headlines recently of half a million dead in the US, you just, I mean, it just it would never, ever have predicted that, that that would happen, ever. So it's, you know, it's profoundly depressing in that respect, but also incredibly heartening how far we have come. And what a time to be a science journalist. Indeed, what a time to be a science journalist. I think, um, yeah, that's it's science journalism's time has really come in this pandemic and you know the reporting that's been done by science journalists around the world uh, is just been phenomenal and, and you know in Australia we've had you know Melissa Davy at the Guardian and Liam Mannix and all you guys at Medical Republic just you know having to, to work like bilio to keep on top of this and to make sure that that doctors and the general public are as up to date as they possibly can be because you, you just couldn't fall behind you couldn't afford to fall behind in this Bianca, thank you. Thanks very much. 
Before we go, don't forget that you can follow or subscribe to The Tea Room right now by searching for the show on the podcast player of your choice. You'll then be notified when a new episode becomes available. Catch you next time.